Okay, let's just bow our hearts as we come before God's word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is living and powerful. We thank you that, Lord, your word says of itself that it is able to divide between that which is fleshly and that which is spiritual. Lord, so much of our lives is consumed with the, the fleshly things, the natural things of this world. And yet, Lord, the real reality is that we have been made in the image and likeness of God. And that, Lord, our spiritual natures, our souls, Lord, that's who we really are. That's the eternal part of us. The Lord needs to feed on spiritual food to grow. And Lord, we pray this morning that as we do so, we would just understand more of your wonderful plan, of your design from before the foundation of the world. And Lord, the incredible lengths that you went to to redeem and purchase humanity for the whosoever, for anyone that would willingly choose to turn and put their trust in Jesus. So Lord, we just pray you bless this time of study. Open our ears, we pray. Open our hearts. Soften our hearts. But take my words now and just use them for your glory and your purposes. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our verse-by-verse study of Revelation, we've come as far as chapter 12. I love this chapter. I mean, there's not a single chapter in the Bible you can turn to and say, we don't love it, but this one particularly is just so wonderful. There's so much in here. Uh, I think it's probably, I'd argue, one of the most important chapters in the Bible. So it's a real privilege to be able to go through this chapter this morning. There's, there's a number of key chapters. Second Samuel chapter 6 is another pivotal chapter in the scheme of things in God's plan, and there's a number of others. But this one is so important because of the things that we see here. You see, it shows the importance of Israel in God's plan and exposes the root of anti-Semitism, something that seems to be, again, growing around the world, this hatred of the Jews. It silences any argument of the replacement theologian. If you're not sure what uh, that idea is, it's the suggestion that God has finished with Israel now, that Israel have uh, done and dusted. That's the view that Islam holds, that they were God's chosen people, they blew it, and now God has no time for them. They've, they've been cast out. And there's many in the church that hold on to that view. It was a view that was carried over from the Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation. Nothing was done to address that. Nobody went back to the Bible to see what the Bible said. So there are many churches, in fact, I would... Who's the boldest to say that most of the churches in this country hold to that view that God has finished with Israel? Well, this chapter totally blows that argument and shows that God has a plan and a purpose for them. And why? The chapter also unmasks Satan and it foretells his destiny. And really it sheds light on all the battles and the conflicts in the Old Testament. Many are confused regarding those things. I remember some years ago, you may remember the journalist John McCarthy that was imprisoned and uh, kept captive for about five years, I believe, in Lebanon. I think it was 86 uh, to 1991 that he was held captive. And during that time, apparently, he had in his cell a Bible. And in an interview with him afterwards that was recorded, he said that he started to read the Bible and he got through the, the first few books and got as far as Joshua and put it down. And he said he knew it wasn't true. Because he said any God that would allow the genocide that, that he commanded Israel to commit by wiping out these nations that were in the land couldn't be a loving and true God. And so he rejected the Bible on that basis. And I think that's so sad because if he had just read on he'd have seen the marvel and the wonder of God's plan and that there was no genocide as such. It wasn't that God was trying to wipe out defenseless nations. As we go through this chapter this morning, you'll start to understand why those things occur. Why are there those battles that we read about in the Old Testament? It's really all the story of God's amazing grace. I want to start by looking at the career and history of Satan because it's a good introduction to this chapter. And as we go through the chapter, you'll start to see all of these things unfolding and laid out. Firstly, the individual, the character, the being that we refer to now as Satan was originally known as Lucifer. The name simply means light bearer. And that's interesting in itself. We'll come back to that in a short while. But we're told in Isaiah chapter 14 that he was the anointed cherub. I mean, this individual was just the top. He was the chief of the angelic realm. We were Probably from scripture, it was seen that he may have even been one of, or even the most powerful angel of all. We find that he was responsible for the worship in heaven. In fact, in Ezekiel, we find that he has musical instruments literally built into his body 
And in probability, he was responsible and orchestrated the worship to God when the earth was being created. He was a super angel. Job 38 verse 7 says that when God was laying the foundations of the earth, the angels shouted for joy. It says all the angels, now if all means all, then Satan must have been among them, but as Lucifer, as this light bearer, orchestrating this worship to God. So the question is, how did he end up becoming the embodiment of evil that we know him to be today? We see, as the angelic host watched on as God was creating, there must have been questions that started coming to their minds. You see, day one, God creates the heavens and the earth. The angelic realm seemingly in existence at this time already. We don't know when God created the angels, but prior to this, God had created the angels. There was no fallen angels, there was no demons, there was nothing wrong, there was nothing that was bad. And then God sets about creating the earth. And on day one, God causes the light to shine out of darkness. He separates the land and the sea on day two, and then causes the trees, the plants, and the vegetation, the fruit, to appear all over the earth on day three. And you can imagine, as the angels are watching on, there must have been a real excitement building amongst them, wondering, what was God going to do next? And you can almost imagine them asking the question, this is amazing, I wonder who it's for? What's the purpose for this? Who's going to be given the job of ruling over this wonderful creation? On day four, God starts to fling the galaxies into space. The sun and moon are created. He calls the living creatures to appear and the birds to fly on day five. And then on day six, God creates the lions, the elephants, dinosaurs, squirrels, sloths, bears, penguins, everything. And it must have been incredible to watch God doing all of these things. And again, that question, who's this for? Well, I think Lucifer was asking that question himself. And I think we see a hint of this in Esther chapter 6, verse 6. Now it's the account there of Mordecai and Haman and the king and so on. But there we read Mordecai, and I believe that very much a type of Satan, makes this comment when the king is looking to reward, in this case, Mordecai. But at that point, Haman doesn't know that, and the king's looking to bless the, the greatest person, the person that saved him from this plot against him. And Haman says, to whom would the king delight to, to do honour? More than to myself. I think that's exactly what Satan said as he watched all these things going on. Satan's already the anointed cherub, already in this elevated position. I mean, who else is going to get all of these things? I remember one Easter some years ago, getting up a little bit later than the rest of the family, and I think they were all kind of doing other things by this point, and I walked into the lounge and there was this big bag of Easter eggs, and I thought, they must be for me! You can imagine my disappointment when my mum came in a little later, she said, no, they're for everybody, we're sharing them out. I was like, oh, so, pride. That was what led to Satan's fall. But then you see God unveils the biggest bombshell, I believe, in all of eternity. Mankind. On day six, God creates man. And not just creates this other creature, this other being, but he creates mankind in his image. You see, Lucifer was no longer the pinnacle of God's creation. You see, it quickly became clear that this stunning new world that God had just spent the last five days creating was now to be given to man. And you can almost feel that that tension. At that moment, something happened that seemed utterly impossible. It was something so catastrophic that it would later require an unimaginable price to be paid to remedy the situation, and even then, it would leave a tragic scar on the whole of eternity. Lucifer, this one who had been the light bearer, this privileged position, he walked on the coals in front of the altar, we're told. In Ezekiel, Lucifer rebelled against God. And we find out as well that a third of the angels also rebelled with him. Could you, I mean, I'm not sure whether you ever stopped to think about this before. What would be such a great thing that would cause this anointed angel, this most important angel, and all a third of the angels to rebel against God? It was this very situation. Isaiah 14, 12 to 15 records that Lucifer already overflowing by this point with envy and hatred for the man who'd been created in God's image, said in his heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. The scripture says, but it's a reference to the angels. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Satan wasn't saying he wants to be like God. That was a preposterous suggestion. 
Nobody could be like God in that sense, but man had been recreated in God's image. Satan wanted that position. You see, Lucifer had not been created like the Most High, but Adam had. So, for Satan, if he'd not been given it, or Lucifer, at this point, as he's starting to, to rebel and fall, if he'd not been given it, it seems he was decided to take it by force. He would take the wonderful earth that he thought rightfully he deserved, and he would try and destroy man in the process. Now, just stop and think for a second. What was his name? Lucifer. What does it mean? Light bearer. Who is the light? Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world. What was Satan's job? I believe ultimately his job was to bring glory to Jesus. To represent Jesus. He was given the top job of all to represent Jesus to the entire angelic realm. And if he hadn't fallen, possibly even to all of creation. And then God creates man. And what is our job? To be light bearers. To represent Jesus Christ. We're called to be ambassadors. I think the thought in Satan's mind of man taking this position from him was just too much. He wasn't going to allow man to become the light bearer, be the one that would represent Jesus Christ. Of course then, in doing this, he would see himself as exalted above all the other angels and he would become the object of worship himself. Lucifer's nature now changed in an instant. His name effectively now changing to Satan, the name that is given in a number of passages in Scripture. That name, by the way, simply means opponent. That's what the name Satan means. For now he become, get this right, not God's opponent, but man's opponent. There's this kind of idea that's crept in from the, the, the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages and so on. You know, that, that God and Satan are kind of pitched in this kind of cosmic battle against each other and we're stuck in the middle. That's not the case at all. Do you know that the devil does not reign or rule in hell? Hell, that we're told in Scripture, was created for the devil and his angels. The devil doesn't want to go to hell any more than you and I. The devil does not rule in hell. There's this idea of this being with these horns on this this pitchfork in this kind of burning fire. That's just mythology. That's just artwork that's been done. Just missing the point completely. Satan does not rule in hell. Satan's domain is the earth. Satan isn't pitched in this battle against God. God created everything. Everything exists because God allows it to. Satan is pitched in his battle against man. We are the opponent of Satan in that sense because we are the one, the ones in who Satan sees his greatest conflict and adversary because we were given this position. We were created like God. We were created to be literally light bearers. In the book of Esther, again, this account, after Haman's little situation, and it's it's just such an incredible account, but... Haman says to the king that, you know, you should do all of these things to the man you delight to honour. And the king says, great, go and do that to Mordecai, the Jew. Of course, Haman's fuming. Mordecai was the last person he wanted to see blessed in any way. But he's forced then to go and clothe Mordecai with the king's apparel and the king's ring, put him on the king's horse, and they parade him to the town, saying, this is what the king does to the one he wants to honour. And that night, Haman goes back to his house, his head, no doubt, bowing shame. And we read, and Haman told and Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends, everything that had befallen him. Then said his wise men, and Zeresh, his wife, unto him, If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews, before whom thou hast begun to fall, thou shalt not prevail against him, but shall surely fall before him. I would suggest that that is, again, a dramatization of the reality that Satan has begun to fall before man, and ultimately he will not stand before man. Not you and I. But there is another man sat upon the throne, Jesus Christ. This brings us on to the need for Israel. You see, Satan took a third of the angels with him when he rebelled against God. We'll see that in the verses in a moment. Over the last 6,000 years or so of human history, Satan has been literally hell-bent on one thing, the destruction of man by whatever means possible. But the man he was most intent on destroying was not the first Adam, but the second Adam. Jesus Christ. God had made a promise in Genesis 3, chapter 15, that the seed of the woman would come and one day would bruise the head of the serpent, would crush Satan. 
See, God pronounced judgment on Satan. And of course, Satan is desperate to avoid that judgment. In essence, the whole account of the Old Testament then is the story of how God engineered and ensured the safe arrival of the second Adam, or the seed of the woman, this phrase that's often used. Now, biologically, of course, that's not a correct term because we know that the seed comes from the man, not from the woman. But in this case, it hints at already, back in Genesis, the virgin birth. So we've got the second Adam, the seed of the woman. Satan, who we'll see in this this chapter, is described as the dragon, desperately trying to prevent the birth of Jesus Christ. What God does, as we'll see, is use Israel as a mechanism to provide a safe environment through which this lineage can come all the way down until God's appointed time. So let's now jump into chapter 12 of Revelation. In chapter, chapter 12, verse 1, we read, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. The first thing to note here, this word here, wonder, now the Greek word there is semion, it just simply means a sign. There appeared a great sign in heaven, is what it's saying. The word's translated seven other times in Revelation, and a few of those times it's translated as sign. Sometimes it's translated as miracle, or here and here, a few other places as wonder. You see, we shouldn't be surprised at this, because Jesus, in the beginning of the book, we're told there that Jesus sent and signified it. In other words, rendered the things that we're looking at into signs, things that help us to see or understand more clearly. So our challenge is to point out what this sign that has appeared is pointing to, because of course that's what signs do. Signs point to something. So we see this great wonder in heaven. And this is what we see. A woman clothed with the sun, the moon, and under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. The first thing to note, though, is that we have a woman and that she's clothed. Now, I know that sounds obvious, it's what the text says, but so many people seem to miss this when they're trying to understand this chapter. See, the clothing is not the woman. She's under the covering of the clothing. So who is the woman? I believe, and I think as we go through the chapter, you'll see it come out. This woman is mystical Eve, if I may put it that way. It's the line that started with the real Eve, the lady, the mother of all living, which is what her name means, in the Garden of Eden. started with Eve. And then comes all the way down through the generations. Abraham eventually is chosen. He's told that it, his family is going to be special because in his family all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And ultimately through that family and then we get down to a, a narrowing even further when it comes down to King David. And one of King David's descendants will be the one. Eventually Jesus is born. You can look in the beginning of Matthew's Gospel or Luke's Gospel, you see an account. In fact, Luke's Gospel takes us all the way back from Jesus to Adam and you see this wonderful lineage all the way down. The seed of the woman coming down through the generations, waiting for the Messiah. Now notice that the woman is clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. Well, this sign should point us straight to Genesis because that's where we see this previously. If you remember what he said, in the 404 verses that make up the book of Revelation, there's about 800 allusions to the Old Testament. This book is drawn out of the ideas that we read about in the Old Testament. The woman seemingly here is clothed with Israel. In Genesis 37, we have this dream that Joseph dreams and he sees his father as the son and his mother, seemingly Leah at that point, Rachel has died, as as the mother of the, the... Brothers, and then of course the brothers being the twelve stars. At that time they reject Joseph's dream and they don't want to listen to him and so on. But this is the idea, it's speaking of the nation of Israel. The woman is literally clothed with Israel. God chose Abraham and his descendants to be effectively like an incubator in which this seed would come down through the ages and be kept safe. Israel were forbidden to marry with other nations so that they wouldn't be corrupted by anything that the devil would try and do. Now, clothing, of course, is given in part for protection, and Israel were to be the protective clothing for the woman. Verse 2 says, And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. Now again, through the ages, this struggle. As I said, the Old Testament is a story of this woman travailing in birth, waiting for the child, Jesus Christ, to come. Right from the start, Satan, as I said, was hell-bent on stopping this child 
Cammy and tried everything possible to prevent it. And when you understand this, it makes so much sense of so many things we read about in the Old Testament. Cain killing Abel. Why was it that Cain killed Abel? Well, of course, there was a jealousy on his part, but I'm sure that Satan was directly behind this. I believe that it's quite probable that Satan himself thought that Abel was the seed. He didn't know how long it was going to be before the Messiah would come. And so by getting Cain, by stirring him up to kill Abel, Satan probably thought at that point he'd won. It was Satan's first attempt after the fall to destroy the seed of the woman. So in all probability, Satan may well have thought that Abel was that seed. But then we get to Genesis chapter 6. There's other, we're just going to skim the surface here. But in Genesis chapter 6, we read of this really bizarre situation where some of the fallen angels came and took wives of the daughters of men. And their offspring became the Nephilim. We read about in scripture with the giants. It was a satanic plan to corrupt the human race so that there'd be no pure Adamic stock remaining. That just remove the possibility of Jesus being born by corrupting genetically the human race. And it was because of this that God sent the flood. It was to cleanse the earth from this infection. We're told that Noah and his family were the only ones who were perfect in their generations. I mean, he was a perfect man not doing anything wrong. No, it means he was genetically pure. His generations going back to Adam was untainted by this infiltration from the angelic realm. After the flood, we read of a a second wave of the Nephilim that came, not as many seemingly, but this invasion now seems to only centre around the land of Israel because that's where God had already said to Abraham he was going to place him, that he was going to give him this land. So it's because of the promise that was made to Shem after the flood, one of the sons of Noah, this blessing was pronounced upon him, and then later with that covenant with Abraham, Satan knew exactly the geographical region to focus his attention on. We then get to the time of the Tower of Babel, and we come there to a man by the name of Nimrod. He tried to establish a one-world government. In fact, it was his dad, Cush, who seems to be the one responsible for building the Tower of Babel. And Nimrod, his son, then tries to take it on to this one-world government. God, of course, intervenes and stops that. You know, that would have given Satan control over the world's systems and therefore individuals. And again, his real intention was to get mankind to unite against the seed. Uh, it's, a, it's a bizarre proposition, but ironically, this seed is their saviour, and they, Satan was trying to get them to unite against him. Now, the incredible thing about this is, this is a dress rehearsal for what will come. See, Satan failed in that first attempt at Babel, but he's going to succeed the second time around. You see, we are heading again for a one-world government. And Satan, by his manipulation, will end up causing the nations of the world to unite against Jesus Christ. You see, every step that Satan has taken to try and stop Jesus being born to start with failed, and so now he's trying to stop Jesus' return and claiming back the throne of David. All false religion, which really stems from Babylon itself, comes from this point. And Satan, again, just trying to flood the world with these corruptions of the truth. And interestingly enough, so many of the world's religions are based around this idea of a woman and a child. Way before we get to the times of the New Testament, this worship of the mother and the child was prominent in Babylon, in China, and around the world. Been maintained to this day. And it's really just a distortion of the true gospel, speaking of Eve and her ultimate seed, the Messiah. So God calls Abraham out of that idolatry and calls him to remain separate. That's why Israel were told not to intermarry with any tribes in the land. And then he goes on because we see Ishmael's contempt for Isaac. And of course their descendants have carried on this family feud even until this day. And then there's attempts on Jacob's life. Esau because of this situation regarding his birthright, wants to kill Jacob. Laban later also seemingly would have killed Jacob given the opportunity. God protects Jacob through those things. Then eventually Jacob's, Abraham and Isaac, Jacob's descendants go down into Egypt. Now it's great to start with, but then Satan tries to use the Egyptians to crush Israel. If you remember, of course, then we get to the killing of the male babies. Why was that? Because Satan wanted to stop the possibility of the Messiah coming. 
Then we get all the wars in Israel, when Israel go back into their land after the exodus from Egypt. Again, critics love, as I said already, to attack Israel for their conquest of Canaan. But the inhabitants of those lands were the remnants of the Nephilim. Had Israel been destroyed by those nations, which they would have quite happily destroyed Israel, the Saviour would not have come. See, this is all part of God's plan, and God chose Israel as a mechanism and the way of protecting this seed. There's many more attacks that we read of in the Old Testament. He didn't, Satan didn't give up and still hasn't. There's attacks to the, the royal line. David is nearly killed by Saul on a number of occasions. Second Kings, we read there of getting down the royal line to just one young child who is kept until he's about seven years old and becomes king. But all the other royal line are, are wiped out at that point. It gets very close on a number of occasions. There's a blood curse placed on Jeconiah in Jeremiah 22. We won't go into the details now. But it was another attempt of Satan by causing this man to rebel against God to try and stop the line coming down to the Messiah. The Babylonian conquest. Of course, God used it for his purposes, but Satan was looking to crush Israel at that point. And then, once Israel are back in the land, after their time away in 70 years in Babylon, the hostility towards Nehemiah and the attempts there to try and rebuild Jerusalem. All attempts by Satan to try and stop the Messiah coming. And there's many, many more. That's just a few highlights. That's the travail that this woman down through the ages has been on. And verse 3 carries on and says, And there appeared another wonder in heaven, another sign. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. Now, this dragon is identified in verse 9 as Satan, so we don't need to wonder who this individual is. This is the devil that John is seeing in this vision. Seven symbolizes completeness. Ten speaks of government. On a number of occasions in Scripture we could cite examples of, of those numbers being used in that way. Satan, ultimately through Antichrist, will set himself up as the head of the world's governments. We'll look when we get to, by God's grace, if we get that far, if the Lord hasn't already come back in Revelation 17 and 18, more of the detail of these uh, ideas that are being pictured here. These seven heads, ten horns, and so on, they'll come up again. And we'll look in detail uh, in chapter 17, because we have more information given to us there. But for suffice to say for now, we've got the woman clothed with the nation of Israel. And then we've got Satan pitted against her, wanting to destroy her. And we read in this tale, drew a third part of the stars of heaven, that's a third part of the angelic realm, and did cast into the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to deliver her child as soon as it was born. You see, Satan had failed in all his attempts to this point. But now, as the child is about to be born, as we finally got to this point, and Israel missed it, but I doubt very much whether the devil did, the day, the time that the Messiah was to come. And so, Satan engineers through Herod to try and kill all of the seed, all of the babies in Bethlehem. Why did that happen? Was it just because Herod was a nasty, cruel man? Well, those may be true, but it was because behind the scenes the devil was manipulating him to try and wipe out the possibility of the seed coming. Of course, Jesus was taken away and goes down into Egypt with Mary and Joseph for a short time and then eventually when Herod is dead he comes back into the land and then, then begins his ministry. Verse 5 carries on, She brought forth a man-child, this is the woman, bringing forth Jesus, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, you've got to appreciate we're getting a real kind of just overview of history here in these few verses that have been given to us. So this woman now, in the protection of the nation of Israel, gives birth to the Messiah, and despite Satan's best efforts at Calvary, Three days later, Satan's worst nightmare came true when Jesus rises from the dead. You see, I think at Calvary, Satan thought that he'd won. He thought that was the final thing, that he destroyed the seed of the woman. He destroyed the Messiah. There could be no possibility now of man being saved, and he forever would remain as the ruler of this world. What a shock he got on that resurrection morning. In fact, by orchestrating Jesus' death, of course, this has already been planned before the ages by God, but Satan's seemingly not aware of those things. Clearly manipulating the Jewish leaders and 
using Rome as well to crucify Jesus. By doing so, Satan killed an innocent man. In so doing, Satan effectively became a murderer and according to the, the law that God had already established, he forfeited his own life as well at this point. Psalm 2, I'm just reading for verse 1 to verse 9, it says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, against God, against Jesus, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This prophecy from Psalm 2, speaking of this time that Jesus would take the kingdom, take the throne, and will bring judgment upon the nations of this world. Now notice again, this woman brings forth a man-child to rule the nations with a rod of iron. We've just seen that. And we're told, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Now we read in the book of Acts that when Jesus had spoken those things, while they beheld him, as his disciples were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight, and while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, he went up. Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner, as you have seen him go into heaven. In Acts chapter 3, Peter speaking, and he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Jesus was called up to heaven, back to the Father's throne. Now, Satan, getting more and more furious by all of these events, turns his attention to the woman. We read in verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared of God that she should feed her a thousand two hundred and three score days. So we're jumping now from the time of the ascension to the time of the tribulation, completely omitting the church age. Why? Well, because a number of times in scripture God chooses to do that. You see, the church was a mystery that was hidden in the Old Testament. And so, effectively, we jump straight forward now, skipping over the time of the church, concentrating on Israel, from the time of the ascension, right now to the time of the tribulation. And at the midpoint of the tribulation, Antichrist, this world leader, this charismatic, dynamic world leader who's going to step onto the scene very shortly, who's going to break a covenant that he's already established at that point with Israel, and they're going to be forced to flee. Jesus prophesied this. If we look in Matthew 24, we read this. Jesus speaking to the nation of Israel. When you, therefore, shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Now, just to qualify, last week we were talking about the fact that there has to be a rebuilt temple on the Temple Mount. And within that temple, this individual, this Antichrist, is going to put there an image of himself and will cause people to worship him. And of course, that will be an abomination to the Jews and to God as well. Verse 16 carries on and says, Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Notice where they're told to flee to, to the mountains. And let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe to them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. This is going to happen quite dramatically, quite quickly. And Israel is going to be forced to flee. We're told, and pray that your flight be not in the winter, because the roads in Judea can become impassable at times. Neither on the Sabbath day, because there's laws regarding how far they can travel on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation. So from this point, we move into this period that Jesus himself here refers to as the great tribulation. Such as was not from since the beginning of time, uh, beginning of the world to this time. No, nor shall ever be. And except those days be shortened, there should be no flesh saved. But for the elect's sake, the context here is the Jews, not the church. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Where is this place that they're going to flee to? They're told to flee to the mountains. 
Most scholars believe, and we'll show you a scripture that seems to indicate this in just a moment, that it will be Petra. People have seen this place. This was a, used in the uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Anybody saw that film and the, one of the final scenes? Was, this place was pictured. But this is a place cut out of the rock in Edom, or modern-day Jordan. And it's an incredible place. There's loads of little uh, in, uh, um, documentaries and things on the internet you can see. And it will tell you a little bit about this place and how incredible it was. But there was a whole civilization that lived in this area. This area is very difficult to get to by even normal means. Now what's interesting is that in Genesis we have a prophecy given. It doesn't seem like a prophecy at the time, but you realize it to be so. When Jacob is coming back after spending his time away with Laban, he sends all these goods and things on ahead to try and appease Esau, his brother. And Esau says, look, I don't need all this stuff. I've got everything I need. Jacob says, well, please take it anyway. And Esau says, okay, well, you come back to my place. And this is what Jacob says. Let my Lord, I pray thee, pass over before his servant, and I will lead on softly, according as the cattle that goes before me, and as the children be able to endure. He says, don't let me come too quickly, because the cattle might not be able to cope, and my young ones can't go that fast. So you, you go on ahead. He says, notice what he says, I will come unto my Lord in Seir, Eden. Jordan. That's where Jacob says he would go. He makes a promise effectively here to Esau that he would come to modern day Jordan. They never went. Was it just one of those things that was never was kind of a promise to keep him happy? No, no, I believe this is prophetic. Because there will be a day when Israel will flee to this place in promise, in, in fulfilment of this promise that was made. They will go to that place. And Jesus, we're told, will go to aid Israel in Edom and is going to return from there after delivering them. When Jesus comes back at the time of the second coming, Isaiah 63, first four verses, worth looking at in regard to that. This will also follow Israel's calling out for him. You see, one of the prerequisites of the second coming is in Hosea 5.15, where God says, I will go and return to my place. How can God return to his place unless he's left it? Well, in the person of Jesus Christ, God did leave the majesty, the glory of heaven, and came to this earth. And Jesus will return to his place till they, speaking of Israel, acknowledge their offense and seek my face in their affliction. They will seek me early, or the implication is earnestly. See, Israel are kind of come to this point of being under such pressure from the governments of the world. They've been forced to flee from their land again. And they're going to cry out to Jesus Christ. Of course, if Satan can destroy Israel, they can't call out to Jesus Christ. You see, Satan hasn't given up in his attempt to try and thwart God's plan and to destroy mankind and remain ruler of this earth. You understand why anti-Semitism is such as it is. Satan really doesn't want the Jews to prosper, would like to wipe them all out. Why is it that one of the stated aims of Islam is to wipe out Israel? Why is it that Israel doesn't appear on any Arab map? Check it out, it's there. You you won't find Israel, it's not there. We carry on, verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. That's kind of like a film we want to go and see, isn't it? You've got... Satan and the archangel Michael pitted against each other. The angels of the Lord fighting against the angels that have rebelled with Satan. And we're not given any more details about these things. Quite how it will play out, we don't know. We're not given any more information. Just this short little snippet. But there's clearly this battle. And we're told in verse 8, they prevailed not. Satan and his angels prevailed not. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. Enough. So Satan is now kicked out of heaven, effectively. And we'll look at the scripture in a moment. But we find in Daniel chapter 1 that Michael there is always seen as being the protector of Israel. What's one of his angelic duties? Satan, Satan may well have been the same rank as Michael before his fall. In Luke 10, Jesus prophetically utters this. He says, And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. I believe Jesus was speaking about what is going to happen, that we just read there, which occurs at the midpoint of the tribulation, three and a half years in. Satan has no longer given access to heaven. You may recall in the book of Job, it starts by 
the sons of God, the angels coming and presenting themselves before God. And Satan happens to come along and tag along and speak to God about Job. And that sets up the whole scene for, for the rest of the book. Satan has access at the moment before the throne of God. But there's going to come a point that that will stop. That privilege will be taken away from him. Isaiah 14 verse 12. Again, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? Somewhere in about 700 BC these words were written, speaking of that which is yet to come, when Satan will be thrown out of heaven, cast down to the ground, the one who has weakened the nations. Verse 9, we're told in a bit more detail, it says, and the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. You no doubt what we're talking about here. Which deceives the whole world. Now, we need to understand that is Satan's mode of operation. He wants to deceive everybody. That's what he wants to do. He'll present you something that seems good, but he'll twist it, he'll distort it, he'll deceive you. You see, deception doesn't work by presenting you something that is so obviously wrong that you don't want it. Nobody would just go and drink a glass of poison. But if you make it seem attractive, and Satan does that in so many things. Satan does it in regard to some of the wonderful gifts that God has created. Take, we're all grown up here this morning, aren't we? Take sex, for example. It's a wonderful thing. God invented it. But Satan has distorted it. And made it something that it shouldn't have been. God's design, God's plan is wonderful. But Satan has done the same with everything that God has created. God has created some wonderful plants and herbs and vegetation, but how many people take those things and abuse them and use them to their harm? Satan is a deceiver. He'll take the good things that God has done and twist them and present it in a package that seems attractive, but ultimately remember that Satan, his name means opponent. And again, not God's opponent, but your opponent. So Satan now at this point is cast out of heaven. The great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world, and he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation, and strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. We'll look at that last bit in just a moment. But if you remember, we've been building up to this crescendo, which we reach in chapter 10 of Revelation, where Jesus, in chapter 5, was seen to be worthy to claim the title deed to the earth, his scroll. And everything's been building up now, and Jesus, in chapter 10, as his angel puts his foot on the land and on the sea and declares, time is up. Jesus now takes back the earth. And this, again, at that same point, this rejoicing in heaven, that Jesus now has been given the or has taken, has claimed back the earth for himself, the kingdom of our God, the power of his Christ, because the accuser of our brethren is cast down. See, that's what Satan does as well. He loves to accuse us before the throne. Uh, he did exactly the same thing with Job. You know, oh, Job's only good because. He starts laying these accusations. Satan loves to do the same with us. And this idea of accusing the brethren. There's a lot of people that try and accuse the brethren. Now, look, something I want to say. We need to be discerning. Discernment is something that's vitally important, and particularly in the days in which we live. There's a lot of deception. There's a lot of things that go on in the name of Christianity that are anything but. But at the same time, we need to be very cautious about accusing each other, accusing other Christians of things. There are sadly a number of discernment ministries who surprisingly lack a discernment. And even now, there's a number that are posting things and reporting things that are blatantly not true. See, this idea comes from Satan, this, this accusing of the brethren. You know, th- there are a lot of Christians that maybe don't go along with things that we go along with or think slightly differently about certain parts of the Bible. But look, it all goes back to the cross. And of course we would love everybody to believe as we believe, to see things as we see them. But we're not saved because we've got our doctrine right. We're not saved because we we understand Genesis to Revelation and all the bits in between and we've got it nailed down. We're saved because of the blood of Jesus. 
Oh, we have a great privilege of being able to read and study his word as a church. But that doesn't make other Christians not Christians. It may be that they sometimes miss out on some of the blessings that God has for reading his word and understanding it. You know what? We probably miss out on some of the other blessings that God has. There are churches that worship in different ways than we worship. Look, our job is not to accuse the brethren. Yes, again, we must be discerning. And anything that is not of God, anything that is not found in Scripture, we reject it. Let's be very cautious about accusing the brethren because this idea comes straight from Satan. That's what he loves to do. And if he can destroy Christians by getting us to fight against each other, we'll understand that's one of the things that he's so determined to do. So the one who has accused us before the throne, day and night, is now cast out of heaven. God no longer has to listen to the things he says. And then we're told in verse 11, and they, that's the believers, that's those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ, overcame him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. See, the word of God is so important. And the word of our testimony, the the lives that we have lived and the way that God has led us is something that no man can argue against. They may not agree with the things you believe, but they can't argue with your life. More Christians have been martyred in the last decade than in the last century. And more have been martyred in the last century than in the entire 1900 years before that combined. Christians are the most persecuted group in the world. Every hour, around about a dozen Christians are martyred. That means in the time that we've spent here this morning, by the time we finish and go home, probably anything about 24, 25 believers around the world would have been martyred, simply for being Christian. Satan hates us. He hates mankind, but even more, hates those that know Jesus Christ. Verse 12 carries on, Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has but a short time. Satan is really very unhappy at this point. Everything he's attempted to try and stop Jesus being born failed. Everything he attempted to wipe Jesus out and destroy him in his earthly ministry failed. Every attempt to try and destroy Israel since has failed. Every attempt to try and destroy the church has failed. The church has only grown stronger through persecution. And now finally he's cast out of heaven to the earth, knowing he has a short time. It will be at this point that Satan will effectively indwell the person of Antichrist. This wonderful, charismatic politician that will step onto the world scene, Satan will effectively take the reins at this point. Woe indeed to the inhabitants of the earth. Because we're now entering that last three and a half year period. The time is short. The time will be three and a half years of this judgment. And we'll look at those details as we go forward. And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which was brought, which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings. It's just first of all, I mean, you think of all the persecution, all the anti-Semitism down through the ages, including the Holocaust and everything else. That's all wrapped up in that verse 13 there. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she may fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time. It's three and a half years. Times singular, times plural, two years, plus one year, and half a time. Three and a half years from the face of the serpent. So for three and a half years, Israel will be supernaturally protected. And we're told that verse, I gave you the reference for earlier in Isaiah, speaks to the fact that Antichrist will not have control over Edom. It's one of the few places that he will not get control over. Israel will be safe there for this time. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as of a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of her mouth. Now, how this is going to play out, I don't know. Are we going to see some sort of tsunami sweeping in from the Mediterranean? I, I don't know how these things will play out. There are thoughts and ideas already in play in suggesting that there's a problem with the Dead Sea, that it's evaporating. And the suggestions of drawing water in off the Mediterranean. There's all sorts of plans that have been discussed over the last, this is how many years now? Now, will it be something along those lines, something goes wrong? I don't know, we'll see. So those things we have to just 
Wait and see. Will we give enough to know here that Israel are going to be fleeing for their lives? Satan will attempt to destroy them, but something is going to happen supernaturally, seemingly, whether it's an earthquake or whatever. And of course, you know, I'm not sure whether you're aware, but we have this great rift valley that runs down from Syria all the way down through Africa, but it runs right through the middle of Israel. So we may find that a number of natural things occur supernaturally at this time. Verse 17, and the dragon was wroth with the woman. So now, not only has the seed or the child ascended to God, couldn't get Jesus, can't now get Israel, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. Now who is left? You see, the church had been raptured. The church has already gone before the tribulation begins. Jesus, of course, caught up to the throne. Israel now have fled, and Satan now turns his attention on her seed. Now, we don't have to guess because we're told in the next part of the verse, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. These are believers, these are Christians. These aren't, of course, members of the church as now, because these will be people that will come to know Jesus during that first part of the tribulation. They will no doubt have been converted through the testimony of those two witnesses we were looking at last week, or through the 144,000 Jews that will go and preach the gospel around the earth. And they will realize that those Christians were right after all. As they start to see all those things happening on the earth. So again, the church are raptured. The 144,000 by this point would have been caught up. Israel have fled to Edom. So Satan now targets the last few remaining Christians who have recently been converted. That brings us to the end of this chapter. We'll pick it up from there next week. And we get into a very key chapter in regard to the events that will take place during the tribulation next time. If you want to read ahead, read chapter 13 during the week, and then we'll study it further next Sunday. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, if we just stand back in awe at seeing the incredible design and plan that you had from before the foundation of the world. Lord, you knew all of these things would happen. You knew that Satan would rebel. You knew that mankind would fall by taking the fruit of that tree in disobedience. You knew, Lord, the cost for all of that would be that you would have to send your son. And yet, Lord, you allowed all of these things to take place because of the great love you have for us. And Lord, for those of us this morning that know you as our Lord and Savior, what a privilege it is. What a a wonderful fact that we have been saved by God. That you valued us and that by your grace you've allowed our eyes to be opened to see this truth. Father, we just thank you for these things. Impress them upon our hearts. Lord, help us not to be such as accuse our brethren, but to show great love for each other. For if we don't love our brothers who we can see, how can we say we love you who we don't? Lord, give us a love for our fellow Christians. Lord, give us a hunger for the lost, those that don't know you. Those, Lord, that will get caught up in the events that will take place. And Lord, we do pray also, as your word says, for the peace of Jerusalem, knowing all that is yet to befall the Jews. Lord, we don't necessarily agree with every decision Israel make. But Lord, you have stated that they are your chosen people. To fulfill your plan. To make sure that Jesus be delivered safely into this world. And yet, Lord, ultimately we see the world pitted against Israel. So Father, we pray, as your word says, for the peace of Jerusalem. Lord, all of these things, we just pray again. You impress them upon our hearts. That we would grow in knowledge and grace understanding more of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen.